I'm, I'm going to be uh, talking today about something that's frequently skipped in apologetics books and presentations. Um, and there's a reason for that, which I'll get to in just a second. Um, we are on, I don't know the actual chapter, from, from this, well, actually from last week on, I'm going to be following the outline of the book very closely, actually. Um, so we're on part three, chapter eight. Is the Bible the Word of God? And is it reasonable to believe that it is so? Uh, let's pray briefly uh, before we start. Uh, feel the need for that. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity uh, week by week to hear your word, uh, to hear your word preached, to hear the proclamation of Christ's sacrifice and forgiveness, to hear the word about our salvation and everlasting life. Uh, Help us to learn and grow and understand your word uh, and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I ask these things in his name. Amen. The thing that's frequently skipped uh, in apologetics presentations is, is it reasonable to believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And the reason for this is most, at least I think this is the reason, I admit I haven't taken a survey, uh, most apologetics presentations and books are intended, at least in theory, to be aimed at uh, seekers or non-believers and attempt to persuade them that it's reasonable for them to believe and that they should to believe. And as a matter of fact, and, and this is correct, I don't disagree with it, that it, it really isn't necessary to presuppose that the Bible is actually communication from the creator of the universe in order to understand, have evidence and arguments, and be persuaded that the Bible is historically reliable, generally historically reliable. That can be demonstrated, uh, we can call it empirically, not in the scientific way, but in the historical way, we, we can say that's pretty well evidenced. And you can go right from there to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which I will go to next week and spend a couple of weeks on that. Can you... Can you know with reason, within historic reason, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? And I'm sorry, you'll have to wait till next week to know whether we can answer that question affirmatively or negatively. So come back next week. But I actually do believe that apologetics is one means by which God and through his Holy Spirit maintains and grows our faith. And I think it is perfectly reasonable and I'll explain why, and you can see if you agree when I'm finished, that uh, to, to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, and you don't have to understand what I'm going to present today to actually be convinced, because I'm also convinced that it is the Holy Spirit that convinces us that the Bible is the Word of God. I am, I am neither one of those who got convinced by apologetics to believe the gospel. I, I was raised going to church. I kind of rejected it, not in a hard way, but like, yeah, I don't need that. Um, and so I knew the gospel. I didn't hard reject it. 
And then at some point, uh, the Holy Spirit persuaded me it was true and not through a lengthy process of arguments. But there are people who are persuaded by apologetics uh, to go from unbelief to belief. And the same thing is true about the Bible being the Word of God. Uh, Again, I was raised uh, in an Anglican community, the, the Episcopal Church, and it was just something that was presupposed. It was background deep background that nobody really questioned. I, I was raised in a small a conservative Episcopal church in a small conservative Maryland rural community, so like I say, it wasn't questioned there. And so after I got saved, it had just occurred to me, oh, I should read the Bible. And it never really occurred to me that it wasn't the Word of God uh, until, of course, uh, I went to college and found out that a lot of people didn't agree with that. So I'm going to present what you could say is a transcendental argument, not transcendental for those of you who are philosophers in the way of Immanuel <coughs> Kant. Uh, and if you don't know, then don't worry about it. Uh, but, but transcendental in, in the way if we presuppose something is true that we can't see, what must be true that we can see? And the best and trivial example for this is the wind. So you can't see the wind, but if you want to claim the wind is blowing, are, are the leaves rustling? Is the breeze blowing in your hair? Does the grass seem to riffle? Are the corn stalks swayed? Are the waves picking up? In other words, if, if these things that we can see are true, then we have reason to believe that what we can't see is also true. That's a transcendental argument. What must be... what? What must be true that we can see to give evidence for something that we can't see. Does that make sense? Um, uh, first, I want to talk about what does it mean to say the Word of God, and I'm going to be very quick, so I won't be stopping to give references. So God's Word is the active force through which He creates and heals. Uh, and sometimes destroys, and I thought I would add that, but that really comes through the message of the prophets, which comes up next. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said, and he said, and he said. So, he spoke, and then it was. Uh, and he, he does this regularly throughout the Bible, but obviously it's most emphatic in Genesis 1. It is also the messages from God given through prophets, kings, and angels. I'm reading through Genesis, and, and I just read the story of Hagar, and the angel appeared to her and said, you know, why are you crying? What's wrong? And he promised her that her son would become a great nation, Ishmael. And then we hear the word through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and the so-called minor prophets who were only minor because their books are shorter. Um, David was, in effect, a prophet. Um, so messages, and sometimes prefaced with, thus says the Lord, and sometimes not. Uh, the Word of God, as it's presented in Scriptures, is also the God-breathed writings of the Old Testament. This is, you can see this developing even in the pages of the Old Testament, but once we get to the New Testament, it's, it's declared that these writings are, in fact, uh, the Scriptures. They are the very Word of God.
the eternal logos incarnate in Jesus Christ. So in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, which in the Greek is logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in, in Hebrews, uh, the first chapter, first couple of verses, it says, in the past, God spoke through uh, his prophets in many and sundry ways, but now he's given his final word, Jesus Christ. And, and this is literal in some sense, but also obviously metaphorical, but a very strong and I would say ontological metaphor, as in a, a metaphor that is really about reality and not just a literary device. The proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, this is the word of God. Um, so when Nick preaches the gospel, uh, not everything he says is the word of God, uh, most of it perhaps. But what he is expositing, uh, the gospel, and today it was the gospel, is in fact uh, the very word of God. This is the word of God to you, that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then last but not least, the apostolic writings of the New Testament. And Every time you read in the New Testament about the inspired writings, they're talking about the Old Testament. So in uh, 2 Timothy, where Paul writes, uh, all Scripture is inspired. He's obviously talking about the Old Testament, so, so we know that. It is inspired, it's considered the Word of God. But even within the pages of the New Testament, you get hints that already the church and even the other apostles considered what they were writing authoritative. They were designated by Christ himself to present God's word to his people, the church. So in Second Peter, well, in chapter 1, he says that, that no prophet ever spoke by himself, but he was moved along by the Holy Spirit. And then, uh, I think it's chapter 3 of Second Peter, he talks about uh, false teachers who were twisting the word of uh, God and also twisting uh, Paul's letters like they do the other scriptures. And the word he used for scriptures is the same word, it's almost a technical term that's used for the Old Testament scriptures in other contexts in the New Testament. So uh, many New Testament scholars uh, say that even within the pages of the New Testament and certainly in the early church, they accepted these writings as on an equal basis with the Old Testament writings. Now, of course, not every... New Testament scholar believes that. Some would believe that the New Testament and including the Old Testament are just uh, the, the stories and wisdom of spiritual people, perhaps useful for our own edification, but not necessarily the Word of God. But scriptures itself say that it's the Word of God and not just the record of other people's religious experience. I think reading about other people's religious experience is a significant thing to do. But it's not the same thing as saying what you're reading is communication from the creator of the universe. That's different. Uh, same thing with it being inspired, quote unquote, in the same way like Shakespeare might be inspired. Uh, if, if you I realize it's hard because it's Elizabethan English, literally Elizabethan English, but you can really learn a lot from reading Shakespeare. Uh, uh, he was uh, a brilliant man, and I think he wrote, I think Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Uh, that is a controversy, somewhat. Kind of like, are there aliens? 
did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? But I think you can learn a lot about the human condition, uh, spiritually, psychologically, even sociologically, from reading Shakespeare. But it's still not communication from God. It's, it's the literary observations, you could say, of a very astute observer. But it's not inspired in the sense of God-breathed. So what does it mean that the Bible is the Word of God? So what am I saying when I, when I say that? This is, this is what I mean, first of all. It is Holy Scripture, the Holy Writings from God, and the Word of God written. That's in the 39 articles. So um, I think the Westminster of Confession, which also has some influence on Anglican tradition, though certainly not like the 39 articles, it just says, it says the written Word of God. And so scripture is, you could say, the record of God's revelation. That's not wrong, but in itself it is literally communication from the creator of the universe. It is not simply the recordings of religious experiences of other people. So that... So to call the Bible the Word of God is to affirm that the Bible speaks as God speaks. Now, I'm not going to go into details about how do we interpret Scripture uh, rightly, but as a matter of fact, for example, one does not use Psalms to actually come up with ontological doctrines. In other words, what is deeply real about God and reality? Because I'm not saying you can't use it to inform your exposition of theology, but Psalms are meant to be expressive. They are the expressions of religious people, but they're the God-verified expressions of holy religious people. Um, so you have to take genre into account. You have to take other things into account when you say the Bible speaks as God speaks. It's not, as they say about the Koran, that everything written in Scripture was literally dictated by God to a prophet. Some were. In some prophets it says, God says, write this down. But not that often. So Peter, I think, gets it right that Prophets spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. So God used their personality, even their writing style, to communicate what God wanted to communicate. So the Bible speaks as God speaks. Um, I almost don't want to say it because it always brings up kind of misunderstanding. I, I would affirm inerrancy in the sense, and I don't want to get into detail right now, that whatever the Bible affirms as true is true. That's a, that's a big question, okay? How do you know what the Bible affirms as true? And so whatever that is that the Bible is affirming as true, I think it is true about reality. So that's all I'll say about that. So the, because the Bible is inspired, the word is in the, in the Greek literally means God breathed in 1 Timothy 3.16. So that's what the Bible says about itself. The Bible is the word of God, which is important because if the Bible simply affirmed that it was, you know, the, the writings purely human of spiritual experiences that people have, I think Judaism and Christianity would look quite a bit different if it didn't say it was the Word of God. Sometimes people stop there. But that's kind of circular. So we say the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Well, why? Well, because it says it's the Word of God. Well, why would you trust the Bible to be right about that? Well, because the Bible is the Word of God. So that tends to be circular. 
Now, ultimately, you break out of this circle, it's not a vicious one, through the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. And I'm actually going to end with that. So if everything breaks down and the ceiling tiles start falling and I have to end right now, let me just say the primary way we know that the Bible is the Word of God is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is a real thing. It's not just really deep emotion. A spirit is not a force or a feeling. He is the Spirit of God, and He can cause you to know things just analogously to... I can cause you to know things. You can cause me to know things by speaking in language and by conveying ideas. Exactly how God does that through your inner spirit, there is ultimately a certain mystery about that. But that he does it, I think, is is patently obvious. Okay. However, like I said before, uh, I think you can make a transcendental argument that shows that if we affirm that the Bible is the Word of God, certain things should be true about it. And I'll identify those things. So to believe the Bible is the Word of God involves faith. This is neither blind nor misplaced faith. There are seven foundational reasons that validate our acceptance of the Bible as the Word of God. I'm not saying that someone could go through these steps and at the end come to the absolutely empirical conclusion, well, yeah, I've got to accept that this is the Word of God, just like E equals MC squared. But I am saying that if we presuppose or if we have been convinced by the Holy Spirit that the Bible is the Word of God, these seven things should be true. Uh, The first is that the Bible should be a unity from beginning to end. And I'll speak of each one of these in turn. Uh, The uh, Bible should be unique among other claimed holy scriptures. Uh, It should be historically reliable. I'll be very quick about that because we've already evidenced that. that If the Bible makes predictions, they should be true. Uh, Not all prophecy is predictive, but there is such a thing as predictive prophecy about this is going to happen in the future. The explanatory power of the Bible. If the Bible is communication from the creator of the universe, then how it explains, you know, God, the world, and everything should make sense to us and explain more things than anything else. The existential depth of the Bible, and by that, that's sort of a subset of explanatory power. The Bible should show us who we are more deeply than anything else, more deeply than Shakespeare. Then the authority of Jesus Christ. If it's the Word of God, and Jesus Christ is the Word of God, then he should affirm that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Uh, The unity of the Bible. Um, You've probably heard this before, but the Bible is really about God's creation and redemption of humanity. It's, It's not a textbook on all sorts of random subjects. It's not primarily a book of wisdom, although there is wisdom in it. Has anybody ever read uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace? Uh, just trying to see who's culture here. But the first time I read it, I read the abridged version, of course. I read the Reader's Digest version of War because I thought, well, you know, I should be a cultured person. I'll read it. And then I read it. It's a great book. Um, it really is. Um, 
And then, and then uh, not really a mistake, but then, it, so the bridge version is like this, about an inch, and then the unabridged version is like, like six inches, not really, but, but really, really thick. And that's because Tolstoy goes into a lot of digressions about the meaning of history and life and human psychology and sociology. And you can leave those out and you still have the complete story. I'm not saying there's parts of the Bible you ought to leave out, but for example... There are reasons that Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other stories or other wisdom literature are in the Bible. Psalms is, of course, the hymnal of the Bible. But you can still pick up the thread of the story without those. Um, They're part of the Bible. I'm not saying we should leave them out. So in Genesis 22.8, you have the story of Abraham and Isaac. So God tells Abraham, I, I want you to offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice. Okay, so Abraham, and, I, and I'm not going to fill in the details, but Abraham and Isaac are walking up Mount Moriah to an altar of sacrifice. And Isaac is carrying the bundle of sticks, and Abraham has a knife and fire. And Isaac says, I, I see we're walking up sacrifice. Uh, I see the sticks. I see the knife in the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And in Genesis 22, 8, Abraham says this, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Which, if you know the end of the story, God does even right then. But that, of course, is a foreshadowing of what is to come. And then in Revelation 5, 6, 9, uh, that's f- from uh, Jan van Eyck's, that's Caravaggio's Abraham and Isaac. That's Jan van Eyck's uh, Ghent altarpiece. And th- this is the adoration of the lamb who was slain. You can't see it that well, but you know, there's a lamb standing there and there's blood gushing out of his chest into the cup. And this we read about in Revelation 5, 6 through 9. And so when Christ says on the road to Emmaus, the scriptures are all about him, he wasn't kidding. This wasn't a metaphor. And if you follow this theme, if this were historical fiction, you could pick out that theme through good literary analysis. It's not historical fiction, it's historical fact. And then right in the middle, you have Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant, where like a, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth, and his iniquities were laid on us all. So the redemption of humanity through, through God himself providing a sacrifice is the main theme running throughout Scripture. Scripture also has, it's not really a, same, uh, a, uh, a sub-theme, it's a, it goes along with redemption. God isn't just, I say just, God is not only redeeming us, he's redeeming all of creation. So it goes from creation to new creation. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation 21, 1, John has this vision where he says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And again, right in the middle, you have Isaiah 65, 17, where the Lord declares, I am going to create a new heavens and a new earth. So there's this unity to the Bible, even though it was written, even if you go with a non-traditional skeptical dating, it, it, 
it's about 700 years. I believe in the traditional dating, but I think it's about 1,500 years, from about 1,400 B.C. to 100 A.D. You've got 35 authors named, and then probably a dozen more unnamed, like who wrote First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. Nobody knows who wrote that. Like the book of Hebrews. I think Origen was the one who said, God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. So you have this unity. And you have the uniqueness of the Bible. First of all, it is unique in its unity. Um, I am not a Quranic expert nor an expert on the Bhagavad Gita or the, that's the Hindu scriptures, or the Mahabharata or the Pali Canon, which is Buddhist. But I've read it enough to know that they really are a disparate collection almost of random text, particularly the Quran. Uh, I, I just have to say, I don't believe the Quran is communicated from God or Allah. I really think it came right from the fevered imagination of Muhammad, and I think it shows. Uh, if you've read parts of the Quran, it's, it's widely disparate. There's really no unified narrative to it. And the same can be said about most other uh, scripture is considered holy. It's unique in its unity. In its teachings, every other religion is really a salvation by works. There's no other religion. You, have, you don't even have incarnation. You have what are called avatars in Hinduism, but it's not really the same thing because it's pantheism anyway. Uh, unique in its teachings... Uh, circulation and translation, not only is the Bible the bestseller of all time, it is in any given year usually the number one seller when you take all books everywhere. More Bibles are sold every year than, than any other book, in, including Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, I say that, and it's like I really read an article about comparison. Now, in, in the English-speaking world, if you only included English... There was a year that Harry Potter beat the English Bible. <coughs> but when you put in all the other translations that were sold year, including translations of Harry Potter, then the Bible wins hands down every year. Um, influence on civilization and culture, which sadly we see by a negation of it. We, we live in a culture that is rapidly undermining the foundation of its culture. Uh, I think you've heard of Jordan Peterson. Um, I, I'm not promoting him. He's a Jungian. That should be enough um, trouble. Um, and uh, maybe even Camille Paglia. Camille Paglia, I must say, is my favorite feminist, lesbian, cultural analyst. Both of them say, and rightly so, that to undermine the Judeo-Christian foundations of Western civilization is a huge mistake, even though neither one of them are Christians, because they recognize, and you can tell historically, that this culture is built on the foundation of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, you can say there are influence from Greco-Roman tradition, and there are, but primarily we are built on a foundation of Christianity, and if you undermine that, it's not really obvious what's going to replace that that would be adequate to maintaining a civilization. Uh, that'll be my sermon for the day.
<laughs> so its influence on civilization and culture, I mentioned Shakespeare. Oh, Shakespeare is thoroughly biblical most of the time. Well, I say biblical as in influenced by the Bible. I, I think his cynicism, and if you can you know, pick up on the Elizabethan English, he's pretty snarky at times too, uh, is perhaps not biblical, but he is saturated with uh, the biblical worldview. Uh, the historical reliability of the Bible is another thing. Uh, we've already talked about that. Uh, it's true to its original writing. It is eternally consistent. Yes, it accurately reflects its time, and it is supported by archaeology and extra-biblical documents. That's a summary of, like, the past three lessons, well, or two. Um, so the historical reliability of the Bible... Another thing, again, that we should expect to be true that we can see if what we can't see. We, we cannot give actual empirical evidence that God validates the Bible. Is that uh, if the Bible makes predictive prophecy, then in fact it should be true. Now, there are examples of this throughout the Old Testament that I won't go into, but I'll mention... Uh, in the history of ancient Israel and the surrounding nations, uh, the destruction of Assyria, the destruction of Babylon, even the two-part destruction several hundred years apart of the city of Tyre. But what's most important, of course, is the messianic prophecy. So you get, you get the idea that David, uh, the Messiah, has a Davidic lineage. Uh, his place of birth is prophesied in Micah, his forerunner in Herald in Isaiah and Micah. His triumphal entry to Jerusalem on a donkey is prophesied in Zechariah and Psalms. His betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, his rejection, suffering, and death, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection from the grave, and, and dozens more. There's one estimate there's 190 specific predictive prophecies. That figure can vary because what exactly is a messianic predictive prophecy is sometimes debated even amongst, you know, conservative scholars of good faith. But there are dozens and dozens of them, literally, that are not controversial. So, and the identification of Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's promised Messiah, you get, even if you assume late dating, uh, like the prophets written down to, you know, like 400, well, actually, they did write down to 400 B.C., but even if you assume late dating for the earlier prophets, it's still 700 years before Jesus Christ. And it's simply unexplainable on the level of coincidence. Explanatory power. Um, I can't go into that in detail, but explanatory power means several things. First of all, it means more facts or observations are accounted for than in another perspective or worldview. For example, the existence of the universe, uh, why there is death and suffering. There are fewer unexplained or explained away phenomena, such as morality, uh, materialism, the belief that all that exists is matter and energy, and atheism, try and explain away morality as simply an artifact or an epiphenomenon of Darwinian evolution. 
I've talked a little bit about that before, but it doesn't really make sense. Or the existence of human consciousness. Even some atheists say that that does not make sense and cannot be explained on a strictly material basis. So the Bible makes sense of the world in which we live and move and have our being, not some other world that we might want to bring about. Uh, the Bible also has existential depth. The Bible tells us who we are and offers the true fulfillment of our longings and desires. It sees into the depths of human nature and psychology and penetrates to the ultimate meaning of our existence. These two things I'm actually going to go over a bit more the last session on November 24th, so I'll just go ahead and leave those for now. Finally, and I think perhaps most importantly, the authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, repeatedly, the Bible is affirmed to be the Word of God by Jesus Christ in the pages of the New Testament, which is historically reliable. And his authority and testimony are established, the authority of his testimony is established by his resurrection from the dead. So, again, those things, unity, uniqueness, historical reliability, explanatory power, existential depth, and the authority of Jesus Christ, these are the things that should be true of anything that claims to be uh, the very word of God written or communication from the creator of the universe. But finally, and really most important, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, again, is not a force, not a feeling, not even deep feeling. Uh, he is uh, typically described as the third person of the Trinity. I'm not, that's, that's more a, a, it's a cardinal number, not an ordinal number, like he's got it on his jersey. Okay, the Holy Spirit indwells believers, testifying them that they are children of God, and that God's word can be trusted. And that's how I came to believe that the Bible is the word of God. And the things that I have mentioned uh, don't prove it. It's not an empirical proof. But it is to say, again, that if we're going to claim that the Bible is the word of God, which I am and we are, then I think all those things should be true about it. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, Tiffany. Has any other piece of literature uh, in the whole world lived as long as the scriptures has? Well, you could say yes. The Hindu scriptures called the Upanishads, parts of them, because th they actually are collected. And so there's some that are later. The Upanishads, uh, uh, some believe, go back to 1800 B.C., not all of the Upanishads and not all of the Hindu scriptures. There, there's, there's several books, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata. Upanishads is, is kind of like a collection of, well, rather cryptic, but wise sayings, so to speak. Um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is about a, a fictional conversation between uh, Krishna and a, a warrior called Arjuna on the uh, eve of a great battle, and it really is about how knowing God is beyond good and evil. It's a very pantheistic treatise. Uh, and the Mahabharata, which I think literally means great war, is another historical, mixed with legend, uh, and I think a little bit of fantasy. Um, so there are uh, ancient texts uh, in Hinduism that predate that predate the Bible. Not all of them. The 
only the parts of the Upanishads. Um, yeah, I don't know that even in Hinduism they're really called the Word of God. Uh, they believe it in the sense is somehow or another they express contact with ultimate reality. Uh, Hinduism is a very complex affair, so when I say that Hinduism expresses pantheism, that's just a major strand. Some aspects of Hinduism are not pantheistic. And pantheism is just the belief that everything is God. Uh, and that you're God, I'm God, the school's God, the, you know, the son's God, everything's God. And, and that your salvation or liberation is your arriving at the consciousness that your Atman, which is loosely equivalent to your soul, is one with God. So you are God, I'm God, everybody's God. So it's not really so much communication from a creator God but it's just people's realization of spiritual truths and then recorded. That's the Hindu scriptures. Don't ask me about the Buddhist scriptures because I haven't read them. So, any other questions? Yes, John. Well, if you have many, so uh, no, I mean, I'm familiar with the Talmud and Talmudic scholars, and I think Nick wants to say if you have children, yeah. you need to go get them. Um, well, of course, uh, there are exceptions, obviously, because there are Messianic Jews, but Jews in general do not accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Uh, and the Talmud, to be a Talmudic scholar, you know, the Talmud, like the Bible's like this and the Talmud's like this. That, that's only a slight exaggeration. Well, Christians do that, too. The Bible is like this, and Karl Barth's dogmatics is about, literally takes up about two feet of space on a bookshelf, if, you, if you've got them all. So... <coughs> The Talmud is commentary upon commentary upon commentary. So, I, I mean, obviously I'm going to disagree with any view that, that, that departs from the teaching that the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are, are about Jesus Christ. But to speak specifically to what Talmudic scholars might say, I'm really not qualified, so... So you, you read that and you get back to us, John. <laughs> well, a lot of the Talmud is, is, not, is not really apologetic. It's really written for the community to, 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 it's, you know, what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? And they'll go to it in incredibly voluminous detail. Like you, can, you, can, you can't walk more than a mile. Okay, you can't start a fire on the Sabbath, and these are the only things I know. But if you had a fire and you kept it going, well, if you kept it going on the Sabbath, well, that's okay. Um, couldn't cook food, but you could warm it up. Um, and, and, all, and, and detail and detail upon detail. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm no expert on Talmudic scholarship. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, nor do I plan to be. <laughs> life, life is short, and there's too many books. Anybody else have any questions? Can yes? Can you share any more about your personal experience? You said the Holy Spirit was how you came back to the faith. Is there well, right. I was saved, or you could say converted, 
or you could say come to my senses in the prodigal son sort of way, uh, was actually in the living room of a Pentecostal street preacher after hearing a Messianic Jew talk about his experience during World War II in a prison in Rotterdam. Um, after I left the, uh, I say left, I mean I still went on Christmas because it made my mother happy. Uh, after I left the Episcopal Church, I, I drifted into New Age uh, thinking. Uh, that was my, actually my first experience with Hinduism and then of course I studied it in seminary so, and Buddhism too. Um, and it, it was a very powerful, uh, I didn't get knocked off a horse, but I was convinced Jesus Christ was talking to me. And it just immediately occurred to me, I, I need to read the Bible. Now, you could say that this was the emphasis of my faith community coming back to me, and that's true, and there's nothing wrong with that. But again, it just... In, in the uh, hubbub and milieu and the chaos of culture and life, it never occurred to me until someone specifically questioned it that the Bible wasn't the Word of God and that I should read it and then I wasn't directed to certain passages and wasn't taught what certain things mean. Uh, I, I could point to more specific instances to how the Holy Spirit did that. But I think that's, if you regularly read the Bible, you, you know this to be true. Uh, Holy Spirit doesn't uh, testifies to all believers um, that it's it's the very word of God. Now, I don't think that uh, denies the importance of good interpretive principles because I've heard lots of people say God told me, and I don't believe God told them any such thing. So, so but anyway, God did tell me the Bible is true. So, any other questions? We have time for that. Uh, I'm not going anywhere except straight home. Yes. Well, yeah, let me again, in the interest of full disclosure, say I am not, uh, I'm not an Old Testament scholar or a New Testament scholar. Uh, but uh, my, my uh, area of expertise is systematic theology, which means we steal from everybody else. We compile it into a coherent whole, and then we claim it's our own. That's, that's systematic theology. So with respect to the New Testament, um, like back in, back in, the, in, in the days of uh, the great influence of German scholarship, middle of the 19th century, it was thought, for example, that uh, the Gospel of John was written very late, like as late as the Gnostic Gospels, well into the third century. And then they found that little flip of papyrus I showed you, the, the Ryland's papyrus, which is, which is reliably dated. You know, there are, I, I can't, I actually have read several articles on paleography and it's like, what, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's like rocket science with paper. And reliably dated and not doubted to, to have been written about 125 A.D., and it was found in Egypt. And so for back then, for, a, for anything to have been written and circulated and gone around from where John probably was, which he was probably in southern Turkey, which was called Asia at the time, and get around to a community in Egypt, uh, 40 years isn't, isn't, isn't a bad figure. So that... 
there are several examples of that of actual documentary and archaeological evidence, you know, blowing these scholarly conjectures out of the water. When it, when it comes to the Old Testament, uh, there's really two competing stories. There's the story that, okay, Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which admittedly does not have his name attached to it, but we're talking about the authority of Jesus. Jesus referred to nearly every book of the Pentateuch, I think, as being the word of Moses, as being written by Moses, as Moses said to you, as Moses said to you. So I, I go with traditional authorship there. Uh, and the other alternative is so-called source hypothesis. Source hypothesis. And you may, if you have any seminary or Bible school training, you might be familiar with the initials J-E-D-P. Supposedly Genesis in particular, but the whole Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is made from four sources. The Yahwehs, because they use the term Yahweh for God, the Elohis, because they use uh, the term Elohim for God. Uh, the Deuteronomist, because that was written around 600 B.C., supposedly during the reign of Josiah. Uh, Deuteronomy means second law. And there is a story of uh, the rediscovery of the law, and I think that's exactly what it was, not the writing of it. Uh, and then the priestly version. Now, this goes back to uh, Julius... Wellhausen, and I forget Graf's last name. It's called the Graf-Wellhausen hypothesis. This, too, has been thoroughly discredited. But, you know, like a bad penny, it keeps coming back in some way, shape, or form or another. So I think uh, uh, people are always going to find reasons to not believe, and, and we do it too, let's admit, not to believe things they don't want to believe. And I always remember the line from the Paul Simon song, The Boxer. A man hears what he wants to hear, and he disregards the rest. And so we all have confirmation bias. And so, but I have read the, uh, the, the, the scholarly attempts to show very late dating for Old Testament. Uh, there are very few serious New Testament scholars working today that go with really late dating. I gave you the traditional datings last week. The late dating will now not be 100 years. It'll be like 10 to 20 max. And the same thing, I think, is true of the Old Testament. So admittedly, I read those serious scholars who tend to confirm what I already believe. But they confirm it very well. Um, and I have read the opposing side, at least in some way, shape, or form. Okay, anybody else have any, any questions? Thank you very much. Um, that might be fuzzy on the podcast because uh, I'm wearing a sweater over the microphone, so bear, bear with Nick on the podcast there. Thank you very much for coming. Oh, and next week we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ.